if you live in Vermont, you have a license to complain. You know, sometimes the weather stays too long and uh, we have, you know, endless days of uh, precipitation or gray skies. And it's interesting. It's the yin and the yang. Mark Twain once said, if you don't like the weather in New England, wait five minutes. I happen to live in Worcester, Vermont, and my views, I can, I can look out every day and, and see a gorgeous view one day and, of course, a gray sky the next, and maybe in six hours the weather will change. So what is that about? Vermonters love weather. They love bragging about it, complaining about it, hiding inside from it, and playing outside in it. It's a topic of conversation almost anywhere you go. People like to compare notes. How much snow did you get? Well, I've got, you know, 16 inches on the hill and only 10 inches fell in the valley. And you get a lot of that. And it's a, it's a matter of pride. We wanted to know just why people are so fascinated by Vermont's weather. So we went to visit a man who's devoted his entire life to studying it. I'm Roger R. Hill, and I run Weathering Heights, and most people know me from Radio Vermont. Let's welcome in Radio Vermont forecaster Roger Hill. And I also work with the uh, state utilities hazardous weather forecaster. So uh, what do you have in terms of temperature uh, this hour, Lee? Waterbury reporting 77 degrees. And that fits pretty nicely. I'm seeing about 75 degrees at Morrisville Stowe, 76 St. Johnsbury Way. 74 at Lindenville, 73 up in the Northern Tier region at Newport. Roger knows Vermont weather like very few other people in the world. He's been tracking it for decades. And he says there's a reason the weather here is constantly changing. That's due to the fact that we are at 45, close to 45 north latitude, which is halfway between the tropics and the poles. And so at this latitude, our being on the eastern side of North American continent, this is kind of where our storm tracks tend to come out of North America. There's a lot of folks have said that sort of the bad side of it is we're sort of the tailpipe of the rest of the, the country. So what's upstream, unfortunately, comes through Vermont. That means things can go sideways fast. Weather can be pretty extreme, and uh, there's a sort of normalcy bias that we all have that we carry with us, and we don't realize that it can be really off the charts extreme. Today we'll hear about moments when Vermont's weather got really weird, and we'll talk about why being obsessed with the weather feels like part of what it means to be a Vermonter. This is Before Your Time, presented by the Vermont Historical Society, the Vermont Humanities Council, and VT Digger. I'm your host, Lovejoy. Every episode, we go inside the stacks at the Vermont Historical Society to look at an object from their permanent collection that tells us something unique about our state. Then we take a closer look at the people, the events, or the ideas that surround each artifact. We have this briefcase, which does not contain what you might think a briefcase would contain. Today, we're with Eileen Corcoran and Amanda Gustin inside the Vermont Historical Society's new exhibition about auto racing. So what we're actually looking at is called a weather station. It is a briefcase, and we're in an exhibit about automobile racing. So a couple of different weird things going on there. The weather station belonged to a man named John Kiefer. He just had a mechanical mind, and he loved cars. So he got into racing cars. Um, he started off drag racing, and then he got involved with a Vermont driver named Bobby Dragon. John is an engineer, and he has that engineer mind. Uh, he wants to measure everything, and then he wants to improve on those things based on his measurements. 
John realized and understood as pretty much no one else in Vermont did at that time, and by that time we're talking about the mid to late 1960s, that the weather actually changed the way Bobby's car was racing. Most of us think about weather and driving only when it's snowing or raining, or maybe when your air conditioner breaks in summer. Basically, John would take this kit to a racetrack at the exact day and time when they were racing, and he would take out these tools and he would start to measure things. What information he got back determined what adjustments he would make to the engine. And I, and I think sort of what's really interesting is you're talking about the idea of precision, and especially in the, the 1960s, and sort of some ways how we think even about weather and how it affects and how we've gotten to this more precise idea about weather or wanting to be really precise about weather, but we still are not able to be precise about weather. Yeah, <laughs> that's hard. And one, that's one of the things and reasons this is a portable kit, right? Because it's one thing to check the weather before you drive to the track and think, oh yeah, it's probably going to be about this temperature, and it's probably going to be about this humidity, and it's another thing entirely to get there and actually measure what it's actually like at that spot. And and John is, is part of sort of a wave of people who are trying to get more precise and more data-driven about the ways in which they race their cars, and weather was hugely important in that effort. There's only so much you can change and control, though. Weather always wins. One of Vermont's worst weather events took place in 1938. It was the only hurricane to ever directly hit the state. You know, I bought this land, my wife and I bought it in 1988, which was exactly 50 years after the hurricane. And I was told that this had blown down in the 38 hurricane, and I thought, wow. How could that be? This is Steve Long. He's lived in Corinth for 30 years. Because the trees are pretty good size and seem like a perfectly mature forest to me, and it had a full canopy, and I just didn't understand how that could possibly be true. And so that's, that's how I really got interested in the subject, was just to try to understand what had happened on my land. The hurricane of 1938 remains one of the deadliest and most destructive storms in American history. It made landfall on Long Island on the afternoon of September 21st as a Category 3 storm. It was moving so quickly that one of the nicknames that it was given was the Long Island Express. The storm was moving an estimated 57 miles per hour. It reached the southern border of Vermont at 6 p.m. By the time it got here, it was late in the day, 4, 4.35. The newspapers referred to it as last night's storm. The flooding was catastrophic, but so was the wind. As the storm traveled from Massachusetts to the Canadian border, it blew 100 mile per hour winds for two and a half hours. And it blew down trees across the state, including on Steve's property. This is autumn olive, which is an invasive plant. <laughs> this forest has grown up since the 1938 hurricane. So if you go back and you think of what it looked like then, it was probably about like this. And all of these saplings and seedlings in the understory were what became the, the forest today. Steve said in 1938, Vermont was about half forested and half open. There were hundreds of acres of woodlots, sugar bushes, and dense backwoods, 
that were vulnerable to the incredible force of the storm. Big trees blew down, and the smaller trees that were more supple did not blow down, and they then capitalized on this incredible bath of new light that was available with the high canopy gone, and they, they became the new, the new forest. So these trees are 80 years old plus, so they were saplings when the, the hurricane came through. They were in place, and they were either an inch or maybe they were four inches, but they were, they were small and they were survivors. Some smaller trees were permanently warped by the wind. The top of the tree was no longer facing the light, but maybe one of its branches was. That branch would become the new tree trunk. It's like the tree zigged and zagged its way back to being straight. That's the way that softwoods do it. Hardwoods will end up with that boomerang shape. Softwoods like this hemlock will come back to, it'll just be a gentle sweep that brings it back to plum. They're always trying to get to plum. Geotropism. So the small trees adapted, but the big trees blew down. And what happens is that because it's a big tree, the trunk is a really, really good lever. It's tall. The wind up higher is stronger. So if you go up 60 feet where the crown of this tree was, you've got a really, really serious force on that tree. So it's swaying in the wind, swaying in the wind, and then finally... It, it, it just can't take it anymore, and it's not that the, the trunk breaks. It's what happens is it's the roots that aren't strong enough to hold it, and so the tree is uprooted. When a huge tree falls and its roots pull up from the ground, it creates a pit. So it's like an excavator came, dug out a hole here, piled it right next to it. Then next to that pit is a mound. And so the mound is where all of the dirt and rock that was attached to that really huge root system got deposited. Put enough of these together and you get a pretty distinctive look. If any woods in Vermont that has this kind of topography where you just look, it looks like moguls. If you're a skier, it looks like moguls. And it's just uh, one after the other after the other. In many forested parts of Vermont today, you can still see what happened during that storm. Instead of reading a history book, you can read the landscape. If your woods looks like that, then pretty much guaranteed that was from the hurricane. Fifty years earlier, the state saw a different extreme, a punishing blizzard that took hundreds of lives. It might have been the worst combination of snowfall, cold temperatures, and high winds that the state has ever seen. Over two days, it hit every single part of Vermont. Monday, March 12th, 1888. At zero tonight, very windy and snowed hard and drifted all day, so I did not wash. In 1888, one in four people in the United States lived between Washington, D.C. and Maine. The blizzard that year paralyzed the entire region. Lucy Freeman West and Erastus Hebbard wrote about the storm in their diaries. Fred and the boys went up with the steers this morning. They got a postal from J.M. Alford saying they were coming Wednesday. So I made and frosted two loaves of fruitcake this p.m. and we churned. The snow blows in everywhere it can and great drifts are on the piazza. 
A light snow began on Sunday, March 11th. In Woodstock, it started around noon. In Burlington, around 8 p.m. Overnight, the storm got stuck. A high-pressure area to the south was sending it north towards Vermont, but it was blocked by another high-pressure area over the Atlantic provinces of Canada. The storm center stalled just south of Long Island, picking up moisture and spinning faster and faster. The barometer began to drop. Monday, March 12, 1888. What a day. Stormy with a strong wind from the north with everything being blockaded. All we could possibly do was to water our stock. No better at dark. It grew bitterly cold overnight that Monday, plunging into the low single digits, and now the snow fell faster and heavier. Blew all night until about 10. I think I never saw it drifted quite so deep here. It was within three feet of the eaves of the piazza. Fred and Black drove through to Dimmick's and to Unionville this p.m., but it was very hard work. The snow was most to the horses' backs. The wind averaged 40 miles per hour in Manchester and 62 miles per hour in Brattleboro. And it wasn't just snowing. The snow was blowing sideways, piling up into drifts up to 20 feet high. It buried entire houses. Tuesday, March 13th, 1888. No better. Barn and stable doors all blocked up. Biggest drifts in front of the house I ever saw. Frank Wyman and Leap Blodgett calling us. No words or any sign of any hard winter, and no signs of any ending. Throughout the Northeast, hundreds of people were killed. Their ships sank, or they were caught in drifts or flooding, or their houses collapsed. People were stuck where they had been when the storm started, on trains, in theaters, visiting friends, or on their own farms. The snow continued through Thursday, but by the end of Tuesday, the worst of it was over. Every town in Vermont got at least a foot of snow. Bennington got 48 inches. Wednesday, March 14th, 1888. Back then, there was no infrastructure for plowing roads. Nothing moved. Trains were derailed or just stuck. Horses and oxen couldn't break through. It was up to humans with shovels to dig out. Shoveling roads all through the country. The New England states have had a terrible storm. Julius shoveled all day, and I done the chores. So the next time you're out shoveling, think about the blizzard of 1888. It could be worse. The blizzard and the hurricane both blew up from around Long Island. But Vermont's extreme weather can come from even farther afield. In 1816, farmers here started to notice some unseasonable frosts, and they didn't know what to make of them. They thought maybe it was God. Larry Coffin is a local historian from Bradford. In those days, the feeling was that God manifested his will through nature. Therefore, perhaps God was angry with the society. Or maybe it was earthquakes in the Mississippi River Valley, or the use of too many lightning rods, or perhaps too much, too much deforestation. They just really weren't sure. In April 1815, a volcano erupted in Indonesia. Not just any volcano, a supervolcano named Mount Tabora. And when it blew up, 
It blew millions of tons of ash and soot and vapors into the air, and those circulating, changing the environment of the Northern Hemisphere for a good year or so. The ash traveled up into the atmosphere, where it drifted to cover most of the Northern Hemisphere. The ash blocked the sunlight. Larry says that Vermonters began to see the effects just a few months later. For instance, in the very early part of the fall of 1815, Vermonters began to see really red sunsets caused by the dust and the vapors in the air. The winter was mild, but then spring never really came. Then June brought 12 inches of snow. The crops froze. Bricklayers in the area, for example, couldn't continue because their water would freeze. It got worse. By August, there was a general fear of famine, despite the fact that in some towns, rye did pretty well, and in some towns, wheat continued, but corn was definitely out. And so some farmers by then were pretty desperate and would build fires around their fields, trying to keep the crops in order. But that didn't work. Larry says he couldn't find evidence of any Vermonters dying of famine, but some had to go to extremes to survive. A lot of people survived by foraging for things like nettles or even an occasional hedgehog, and they began to trade maple syrup for mackerel from the Atlantic coast. So sometimes the year is called the year of the mackerel. Most of us call it the year without a summer. Some farms never recovered. Families lost everything when their crops failed, and they saw leaving as their only option. People gave in to Ohio fever and moved. They figured maybe this was done for northern New England. Among the families that left Vermont to seek opportunity elsewhere was the Smith family of Sharon. Joseph and Lucy Smith moved their growing family, including 11-year-old son Joseph, to Palmyra, New York after their crops failed. The family's move placed them square in the heart of the Second Great Awakening, a new wave of religious enthusiasm. Joseph Jr. would grow up to found the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In what I know about my own ancestors, all of whom are Vermonters and have been here since before Vermont was a state, they were stubborn, and, and they had to be. It's hard living in farms, and uh, it's, it's difficult, and you have to be solid in your approach to the way that life is, and take it as it goes. Vermonters who stayed worried in some of the same ways we worry today. They worried that the best and brightest were leaving the state, and that there wouldn't be enough people left behind to support the economy. They worried that Vermont would never look the same. They weren't entirely wrong. One volcano, almost 10,000 miles away, had changed Vermont forever. Well, I think the one thing we've come to realize in modern times is that the, our local weather can be impacted by events thousands of miles away. And so, for example, in my garden, we've planted the same garden for almost 50 years, and we have had probably 10 days on each end of the growing season that we never had when we moved into that house. And that's obviously being affected by climatic change uh, all around the world. But I'm not sure that they realized it then. We're realizing now that global events are once again changing Vermont's weather and way of life. The variability is on the increase. The old days of following the calendar like we used to have in New England, where, you know, it's 
cold generally around Thanksgiving and it snows and the snow stays uh, most of the time on the ground, uh, you know, through, say, early April or late March, uh, those days are gone. We asked Roger Hill what the weather in Vermont will look like as climate change continues. In the short term, we'll get more precipitation, so more snow. But the pendulum could swing the other way, too. We're sitting here with beautiful green, you know, lush vegetation right now. But if we were to have a really bad drought, just imagine what birch bark does, you know. and Just imagine the kind of fire we could have. He thinks in 50 years, it might snow only on the mountaintops. And as things heat up, the solitary hurricane of 1938 might begin to look tame. As the climate shifts and gets warmer, it also adds more water vapor. And as you heat up the oceans, which is where a lot of the warming is taking place right now, those sea surface temperatures may mean that we have a hurricane alley that comes up into New England, kind of like what maybe North Carolina experiences and maybe down in Florida. This is, of course, a long ways out. We may be looking to our history of extreme weather for lessons more often than we'd like. And in 50 years, our experiences now will be history to Vermonters in a place that we might not even recognize. Before Your Time is presented by the Vermont Historical Society, the Vermont Humanities Council, and VT Digger. This episode was produced by Mike Dougherty, Amanda Gustin, and Eileen Corcoran. I'm Lovejoy. Thanks to our guests, Roger Hill, Steve Long, and Larry Coffin. Grace Olney and Josh Muse read the diaries of Lucy West and Erastus Hebbard. Before Your Time comes out every month. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And find images and other artifacts from this episode on our website, beforeyourtime.org. <laughs>